Thank you all very much for braving the, the tube strike and the um, uh, exams and coming to listen to uh, Hussein Abdul Hussein, whom we're honored to have here with us tonight. He uh, is a visiting fellow at uh, Chatham House and the Washington correspondent of Al-Rai newspaper in Kuwait. Originally of Iraqi Lebanese extraction, he has worked in Beirut for a number of years and in particular worked for the uh, famous publication Daily Star. Um, he's the author of a forthcoming uh, report um, from Chatham House which will be entitled Confrontation Through the Ballot Box, Middle East Elections and the U.S.-Iranian Relationship. Um, Hussein will speak for about 20 to 30 minutes on the Lebanese elections, and then he will take questions from the audience. So please a warm welcome to Hussein Abdul Hussein. Thank you, thank you everyone, uh, and thank you uh, for LSC to having me, for having me here. Um, as you all know, the Middle East is such a complicated subject, and what's more complicated is when you decide uh, which uh, areas you'll, you'll highlight in, in any lecture or panel. But um, I guess uh, what, what I'll try to do this time is to give you uh, a regional background and then uh, try to focus more on what's uh, pending, such as the Lebanese situation, Lebanese elections, uh, to an extent Iraq, Syria, and uh, the coming Iranian elections tomorrow. Um, so uh, I think when, when looking at the Middle East, we should, start, we, we should look at um, the new Middle East of uh, President George Bush, not this one, uh, the father, and his Secretary of State, James Baker. After the, the Cold War, uh, and after, by the time the Cold War had ended and the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait and the liberation of Kuwait, uh, we got a new Middle East. Now, that was not necessarily a better Middle East, but it was a different Middle East than the one that we used to know throughout the Cold War, the 80s, most of the 70s. And according to the uh, new Middle East, uh, Saddam Hussein, the former president of Iraq, was uh, greatly weakened and he was still there as a scarecrow for uh, Iran. Uh, Syria was, giving, was given the upper hand in Lebanese domestic politics, and uh, the peace process started between the Arabs and the Israelis, more specifically between the Palestinians and the Israelis. And uh, the world uh, was, the world was uh, happy to see uh, such historic photo ops between uh, a Palestinian leadership shaking hands with the Israeli leadership. That was happening for the first time. It captured the attention and the imagination of everyone. And uh, this Middle East uh, endured throughout the 1990s um, until I would say 2000 when the second Intifada broke out in Palestine in the West Bank and Gaza and one when we all know when, when the 9-11 attacks took place in New York and in, in Washington and uh, therefore the war on terror started. 
Uh, well, as far as the Middle East is concerned, uh, the war on terror did not uh, reach its shores, so to speak, until 03, when we saw in April 9 the Marines pulling down Saddam Hussein's statue in, in Baghdad. Uh, that was the time when things started changing. And uh, of course, Iran and uh, Syria f felt uh, threatened. Uh, felt scared because uh, America was uh, very close now with, with its all its troops and its superpower. Um, so they rediscovered something, a tactic that's uh, very interesting to observe and, and which ironically uh, had started from this country. Uh, what, what we call the asymmetric war that uh, the all famous T.E. Lawrence started uh, almost 100 years ago by instigating the tribes against the Ottoman army. And what Syria and Iran did, even though they were scared at, at first, Syria started cooperation in terms of intelligence with Washington S between 01 and 03. Iran sent uh, more than uh, one message to Washington saying, we're ready to stop whatever nuclear uh, program we have and to talk. Um, anyway, an old arrogant Washington did not take any offer and um, Washington thought things are, are easier than they, they should have been. Uh, and, and Iran started to work, by the end of 03, Iran and Syria had started a full-scale full asymmetric war with the American army, um, and which, which the media often calls the insurgency. Now, I'll, I'll have to just leave it here because I have to give you the background, of uh, the, the domestic background of Lebanon. Um, now, what was happening in Lebanon uh, starting 1998, the ailing uh, Syrian president, Hafs al-Assad, who was a, a, a skilled and shrewd politician and who was ruling Lebanon much through skill, let's say, uh, uh, through the traditional leaders, the popular traditional leaders, the notables of Lebanon. And it worked for him, and Syria maintained the upper hand in regulating whatever was going on in Lebanon. In 1998, Assad was ailing, so he was grooming his son, and he uh, uh, commissioned him what, what we call the Lebanese, what, what the Syrians call the Lebanese file. And uh, Bashar proved to be much different than his father. Instead of relying on the traditional leadership inside Lebanon, he, he relied more on intelligence and army officers and started promoting them and giving them a free reign uh, we saw the election of the, of the former uh, army commander, General Emil Lahoud, and then we had another general, Emil, uh, uh, Jamil al-Sayed, who, who became the de facto ruler in Lebanon. And of course, in Lebanon, that won't uh, go easy with the traditional leaders, especially uh, uh, the leader of the Sunnis, uh, Rafi, the, the late Prime Minister Rafi Hariri, the leader of the Druze, Walid Jumlat, other, other Christian leaders. Uh, so uh, we could see friction coming, and tensions started, started building up between the two, and it was only a matter of time that the Lebanese uh, uh, were going to revolt against the new Syrian style in Lebanon. Uh, now, uh, I'll, I'll just go back, switch back to the regional context. Um, the insurgency in Iraq had started by the end of 03, and uh, by the summer of 04, Washington had succeeded in convincing uh, Riyadh to join her in stabilizing the situation in Iraq. And this means that uh, 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 the Saudis were, were, were 
going to use their influence among the Sunni tribes in Western Iraq, and they were going to use whatever intelligence, because as you might know, every, every country in the region has its intelligence presence inside Iraq, so they can incite violence, and they can uh, stop violence, and they can collect information. So Saudi Arabia joined uh, America in, in an attempt to stabilize Iraq, uh, I would say for Saudi reasons, because, because Saudi Arabia feared that an, a, a Shia Iraq would slip out of its, uh, or out of the control of the m more Sunni Arab world. So Iran would get a nuclear bomb and a Shia uh, uh, Iraq as its allies, so that would be, that'd be uh, too uh, big for the Saudis to handle. Saudi Arabia shifted and started helping out the Americans uh, by the summer of 04. And uh, uh, we have it on record that uh, Iran uh, uh, sent uh, uh, delegates to uh, former Prime Minister, late Prime Minister, late Lebanese Prime Minister, Rafiq Hariri, sent him delegates to uh, warn him not to go down the Saudi path. They said, okay, Saudi Arabia is now shifting. We are winning in Iraq, but Saudi Arabia is changing and you must, uh, you must stay away from Saudi Arabia. And they gave him the example of, of bombing the offices of, of the Saudi-owned Al Arabiya satellite TV in Baghdad. Two weeks after that bombing and the warning, uh, uh, Hariri was killed in Beirut. And uh, to me, this marks the, the end of whatever formula that, that, has been, that had been in Lebanon since 1991. The Saudi-Syrian-American agreement, how to handle Lebanon, just fell apart, and now we were in for a confrontation that sometimes take a, a, a violent shape. At other times, it's just through ballot boxes like we saw on Sunday. Um, uh, the bottom line is that Lebanon has been living a stalemate or, uh, uh, or division among its uh, main uh, coalitions for a while now. And I think uh, this is not changing anytime soon until things change in the region or probably in, in the world. Uh, so uh, this is just a, a brief domestic and uh, uh, regional context for whatever is going on. On Sunday, uh, Hezbollah and its allies, mainly the Christian general Michel Aoun, were banking on winning elections in Lebanon. And as a matter of fact, pre-election polls showed that this alliance would win by two or three seats, would win the majority in, in, in the parliament that's, uh, that has 128 seats. Now to everyone's surprise, uh, Hezbollah and its allies were defeated. Uh, the March 14 coalition that's uh, composed of uh, uh, Mr. Saad Hariri, the son of the slain prime minister, uh, Walid Jumblat, uh, and Christian leaders uh, won and defeated Hezbollah and its allies by a big margin of 14 seats, that's 71 to 57. Uh, now, this, uh, this was a surprise to everyone. And uh, if we look at Lebanon, and if we think that everyone, everyone believes, or most analysts at least, believe that Lebanon is the reflection of whatever happens or will happen in the region. Um, so now we have uh, winners and losers in Lebanon. The winners, of course, are March 14, uh, their allies, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan, Washington, the, what we call the, the moderate Arab alliance that, that's allied with Washington as well. Uh, 
the ones who were defeated, of course, were Iran, because uh, uh, President Ahmadinejad had predicted that uh, his allies would win and Lebanon would realign officially uh, with Iran and Syria. This did not happen, so I'd, I'd say elections were a blow to the prestige of, of an expanding and growing Iranian empire in the region. Uh, Hezbollah lost its, uh, its legitimacy. Its ally, uh, Michel Aoun, the Christian ally, who, was, who has served so far as a fig leaf for the arms of Hezbollah and its operations in Lebanon, uh, uh, lost big with a popular vote. In 05, he had swept Christian districts. This time, where he won, he won either by very slim margins, that's less than 2,000 votes, or won because of the Shiite vote in his districts. So Michel Aoun is no longer the leader of all Christians in Lebanon. As a matter of fact, he collected only 42% of, of all the Christian votes on Sunday, whereas the Christians of March 14 collected 58%. So uh, uh, Hezbollah lost Michel Aoun. Uh, it lost legitimacy uh, because uh, so far Hezbollah had claimed that um, uh, the Lebanese people support its arms and whatever resistance and whatever plans it has for the region and for Lebanon. So uh, this was another loss. Uh, the bigger loser in all of this, I would say, was Syria. Uh, Damascus had fielded close to 12 candidates in the different districts throughout Lebanon hoping that if, uh, if, can, if these uh, candidates can make it to parliament, then Syria can reconstitute a big bloc inside parliament. And by doing so, Syria might regain some influence uh, in the Lebanese political scene. This did not happen. Only four of the candidates made it, thanks to the generosity of Hezbollah. And they only made it in, in Hezbollah districts uh, anyway, or in, in, in districts where Hezbollah is dominant, so to speak. Uh, so Syria is a loser, and uh, this means that whoever thought Syria can be ever lured away from its alliance with Iran, now this has drastically decreased, because Syria will have to rely more than ever on Hezbollah, which is closer to Iran than, than Syria, to uh, maintain its influence in Lebanon. And uh, we believe that Lebanon is very, very, very important for Syria, and it's around its it's around Lebanon that Syria bases the rest of its uh, uh, policies in the region. So uh, these are the winners and losers in Lebanon. Uh, I'll just say quickly uh, what are the possibilities that we have. And the possibilities that we have in Lebanon clearly reflect uh, uh, what's coming in the region. Uh, even though uh, the coalition that is supported by Iran and Syria lost elections, uh, it still maintains the arms. So, uh, it, it, in fact, it's the de facto power in Lebanon. And uh, by reading the editorials in state-owned and run newspapers in Syria, or by reading editorials by newspapers close to Hezbollah, um, you would find out that Syria and Hezbollah are now giving the uh, uh, March 14 coalition three options. Uh, the first one of them is to keep business as usual inside Lebanon. And that's to grant Hezbollah and its allies the blocking third. Uh, the second one would be to restore uh, whatever political formula that existed prior to 05 when Syria was forced out of Lebanon and, and, and there was the independence uprising inside the country. 
and by restoring that, it means that uh, Mr. Hariri will get to focus on reconstruction and economics and leave uh, 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 security forces and resistance to Hezbollah and Syria. The third option is to get uh, Mr. Najib Mikati, who's a uh, who's a former prime minister, and he was elected in, in, in the northern district of Tripoli on Mr. Hariri's list to parliament, uh, to to uh, to to make of him a prime minister. And Mr. Mikati is believed to be uh, a consensus prime minister and has good ties with both sides. So uh, these are the three uh, options that Syria are giving to uh, the March 14 coalition. Uh, we know so far that Mr. Hariri will most probably uh, be named the, the coming prime minister. What will Mr. Hariri do? I don't think he'll be happy to take any one of these three options. Uh, all of them mean that Syria or, or Hezbollah will, will maintain strong influence inside the cabinet. And you have to keep in mind that uh, this out, uh, with this outgoing cabinet, uh, Hezbollah used to have a blocking third, and the cabinet was headed by Prime Minister Senyura, who was close to Hariri. Uh, the special tribunal on Lebanon sent uh, an MOU uh, for the cabinet to sign. And this MOU uh, uh, is related to uh, mechanisms of investigation inside Lebanon. And of course, uh, Hezbollah and its allies threatened to resign from the cabinet if, if, if the cabinet ever endorses the MOU. So uh, I would say this MOU issue, we have to keep an eye on it because that's a deal breaker for everyone. The March 14 coalition know this, uh, Hezbollah uh, knows this as well, and I think uh, we are in for a complicated process of negotiations between two sides, which reflects a greater image of the no compromise situation that we are living in the region. Now, uh, this said uh, about Lebanon, I'll just uh, uh, say a few things about Syria. Uh, Syria has been so far the country uh, with the best, that can offer the best face for most Western capitals. After all, any uh, American congressman or British parliamentarian can just take uh, the plane and land in Syria and he'll be welcomed by a, a people who just look like any uh, Western uh, officials. And this is not the case in Tehran because you can't do the same thing and go to Tehran or you know, go to other capitals around the region. So uh, I think uh, Syria has been under the, the spotlight for a while now. Uh, to understand what the Syrians do, uh, you have to think of the template that was, that was uh, produced by former President Hafez Assad. Uh, Syria has no oil. It's sort of an impoverished country, so to speak. Uh, and uh, Syria is a small country, so if compared to Egypt, Egypt has 70 million people. Saudi Arabia has the biggest oil reserves in the world. So compared to any one of these countries, Syria would look irrelevant. So what Syria has been doing for the past few decades to remain relevant is to offer the West services, whether in terms of security, intelligence cooperation, uh, make, uh, fixing things in Iraq or fixing things in Lebanon or fixing things inside Palestinian camps, which I'm not saying the Syrians always deliver, but that's ha that has been the traditional role that Syria offers to uh, 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 most Western capitals. Now, as it stands, Syria has been offering one thing to America and most of the uh, Western capitals, 
to help fix things in Iraq. Uh, on, on a different note, Syria has been offering to engage Israel uh, through peace talks. And these two uh, issues are tempting for uh, most of the Western capitals. Now, on, on, on Iraq, I don't think America or Washington will take the offer because Washington believes it has paid a lot of treasure and blood to stabilize Iraq. Uh, they don't uh, plan to talk with Syria over, over Iraq. Uh, so this pushed the Syrians, so to speak, to try to steer trouble for the Americans. Uh, a month or so ago, we saw a network of uh, Tunisian, Tunisians uh, blowing themselves uh, blowing themselves up in, in, in Iraqi cities and causing a lot of casualties. Uh, we heard General David Petraeus saying in public that Syria uh, is held responsible, that America has concrete evidence that Syria was involved in this. And uh, a, a, a week later, Assistant Secretary of State Jeff Feltman and uh, uh, Dan Shapiro of the National Security Council made a trip to Syria, and uh, we learned that they specifically told Damascus to stay away from causing trouble in Iraq. So uh, uh, Washington is not buying any Iraqi stuff from Syria. So Syria will be left with, with the issue of peace with Israel, which is, of course, also tempting to, to Washington and to other capitals. Now, this issue is critical because uh, Assad thinks that he can merely r replicate whatever negotiations Syria used to have throughout the 1990s. In the 1990s, the formula was based on the idea that uh, it will be land for peace. Uh, in return for peace with Israel, Syria will get the Golan Heights back. Uh, this is not the case anymore. And uh, we've heard from uh, many Israeli officials that uh, what happened in Turkey, uh, uh, the Syrians and the Israelis went to, to, to Ankara and there were indirect peace talks between them is that the Syrians demanded that uh, Israel uh, gives a commitment that it will hand back the whole land, the whole, Golan, the whole Golan Heights. And Israel gave the commitment. They said, okay, we're, we're ready to give you back the whole land until the June 4, uh, 1967 line. Uh, but in return, we, we want uh, a commitment from you. And the Israeli demand was that Syria commit that in return for the Golan Heights, Syria will deliver on Hezbollah and Hamas. So, Israel is now is not only interested in a peace treaty, Israel is interest, interested in, 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 in getting Hamas and Hezbollah. Uh, needless to say, the Israelis never get their commitment from the Syrians, and you know the rest of the story. Uh, uh, negotiations just uh, broke out between the two parties. So uh, as it stands, I don't see any common ground between Syria and Israel, just, just like we don't see any uh, uh, easy compromise between the March 14 coalition and the Hezbollah-led alliance inside Lebanon. And uh, we are left uh, with Iraq. A quick word on Iraq. Uh, we can, uh, it's, it's just unfortunate that the, the mechanism America uh, reverted to finally to stabilize Iraq is the one that was invented by T.E. Lawrence 100 years earlier. Uh, uh, we tried so many uh, tactics in Iraq and uh, at the end of the day, America had to talk to the tribes and, and, and uh, bankroll the tribes, and that was the only way, which shows that, that the, the, this society has remained the same for a long time now. Uh, Iraq looks like Lebanon. Uh, it has endorsed a similar 
democracy called the consensus democracy, which to me is an oxymoron because consensus is the rule of everyone, whereas democracy is the rule of majority. So if you can match these together, be my guest. Um, Iraq is now also living a zero-sum game, so we cannot expect Iraq to play any uh, significant role in the region because of the divisions inside its uh, uh, component parties, just like Lebanon. Uh, the only difference in Iraq is that uh, the pro-Western uh, coalition or Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki enjoys physical protection because there are, as we know, more than 150,000 troops. I think the number is now probably 130,000 uh, troops, in uh, thousand troops in Iraq. Uh, and the, the Iraqi army is growing stronger. So that's uh, good news for the Iraqi government. Uh, they are in a, in a better shape than in Lebanon because in Lebanon we know that the March 14 coalition are physically scared. Uh, they, are, they are underground most of the time and they are scared that uh, what happened in May 08 when Hezbollah fighters just swept areas in Beirut and Mount Lebanon would, would be repeated at any moment. Um, so a final word on Iran because I, I suspect some of you uh, have, have come here to, uh, to hear what will happen tomorrow. Well, I've talked to every Iranian expert that I know and each one of them told me the elections are unpredictable. But uh, <laughs> what, what we know is that uh, yeah, they're honest, exactly. Uh, what we know is that uh, the Supreme Leader has thrown his weight behind uh, incumbent President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. And uh, a reformist, I talked to uh, an Iranian reformist earlier today, and he told me if we are to, uh, if we are to compete with Mr. Ahmadinejad uh, and, and whatever rigging that's taking place pre-elections, we will have to get an extra five million votes. So this looks complicated to me. I think the best case scenario would be for the reformist candidate uh, Musavi to, to go to a second round. Now, if we assume that Musavi makes it and gets elected, I don't think that makes much of a difference. You have to keep in mind that the whole nuclear program was revived under reformist president Mohammad Khatami. And who, whoever calls the shots, the actual, you know, the actual leader in Iran is uh, the supreme leader Khamenei and the heavyweights uh, who, who support him. So the president doesn't make, uh, make uh, much of a difference. At best, he's, he looks like a vice president in the United States, uh, uh, unless the vice president is Dick Cheney, who we all know is, is uh, influential in everything. Uh, so the president won't change much. At least I think that's my personal opinion with, with Mr. Ahmadinejad. You will, you will get what you see. Uh, with uh, Mr. Musavi, you'll get a nice person, but in the background, things might be different. And I'll just uh, give you a, a, a few closing remarks uh, before we, we start the Q&A. I have a few observations that might be frustrating for someone from, from the region, and that's my personal experience. Uh, between 03 and now, the West, and especially the United States, have tried all possible combinations in the, in the Middle East. They, uh, uh, they tried a direct military intervention in Iraq, uh, they have tried uh, to, to, to support and promote democracy forces in Lebanon through multilateral uh, 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 diplomatic activity with other world capitals. Uh, they have tried to build a, an international coalition to sanction Syria and Iran. 
They have forced the Palestinians to hold elections in Gaza and the West Bank. And, uh, and in other places, we all know that they've been supporting uh, autocrats, just plain and simple. Uh, I can't think of any other scenarios. Uh, it's unfortunate that all of these scenarios have, have failed. And this is, this is not good news for anyone who follows on the Middle East. And I think uh, if, if the world uh, should ever help in promoting democracy and good governance in the Middle East, perhaps we should look elsewhere. Perhaps the, the answer is not in politics. The answer could be in long-term plans, in, in, in cultural projects. Uh, after all, I know that uh, whoever is ruling the Middle East, is, they know that they're staying there. And they know that the West is impatient and they get to change governments every now and then. And when governments change, policies change. So there's no long-term vision from the West to deal with the Middle East. Uh, it's frustrating, but uh, uh, that's reality. Uh, and uh, with that, I'll conclude and I'll be happy to take your questions. Thank you. A very uplifting end to your <laughs> to your lecture. Um, I'll I'll go straight to questions and then um, I will abuse my my position as chair at the very end if there's some time left. So, yes. I don't know if you heard any of that. I was asking a question um, about Israel and United States. How do you see the relationship between United States and Israel developing in the future, bearing in mind that the um, Americans, or at least here in London, are showing considerable frustration with Israel, and uh, it seems to be uh, not developing very well? I was just interested in how you how that will develop in the future. Do you want, do you want to introduce yourself as well? Sorry, and Maybe that's a good thing for everyone to... And sorry yes, about that. Okay. Anthony Frost from the European Atlantic Movement. Um, well, that's an interesting question and that's an interesting thing to keep an eye on. Uh, I was thinking the other day, it's unfortunate that uh, the world just keeps on electing governments from different sides of the political spectrum. So you get a leftist president in, in, in Washington and the rightist prime minister in, in Tel Aviv. And then uh, it seems that the same thing is changing over here because uh, uh, the UK might be shifting from the left to the right. So it's just bouncing back and forth and we can't have one uh, unified either leftist or rightist uh, uh, coalition to handle things. Uh, it'll be interesting to watch how things uh, uh, unfold between uh, the old popular President Barack Obama and uh, uh, Israeli Prime Minister uh, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, who we all know, uh, whose coalition is just hanging by, by threat. So he's not as, as strong as it stands as the American President. And uh, what's remarkable in the American President's uh, uh, performance this time on the Palestinian-Israeli issue and the whole peace deal is that this is probably one of the few American Presidents who's starting was starting to work uh, for a peace deal from the very beginning of his uh, term. And, and this means that the president still has a lot of, of, of uh, political capital uh, to, uh, to use in, in supporting whatever, whatever plans and ideas he has. And I'm sure this will give uh, Mr. Netanyahu uh, a rough ride uh, uh, two years down the road from now.
Yes, at the very back there, please. Um, please you, introduce yourself. Okay, Kate Nevins from Chatham House. Um, do you think that Hezbollah are genuinely signed up to the political process? And in light of the fact that they lost on Sunday, do you think that that will change their role in the country? Will they have less influence on domestic politics in Lebanon? Well, there's a, uh, there's a sad reality in uh, most Middle Eastern country, especially in Lebanon, and now we see with the Palestinian Authority. Elections come after national reconciliation. I think they should come before that, right? Because uh, elections should, should resolve uh, conflicts. Uh, what happens is that uh, conflicts get resolved as a prerequisite for elections. So uh, these elections only happened after we all, uh, what happened in Lebanon, Lebanon almost went to civil war and the March 14 coalition went to uh, Doha uh, uh, in, in Qatar under the threat of arms. Uh, what's interesting is that the, uh, the electoral law used, used this time uh, was picked by, by Hezbollah and its allies and they thought they were going to score some good uh, uh, results. Now, how, how will this affect politics in Lebanon? Uh, I, th I don't think Hezbollah uh, uh, plans to take over power anytime in Lebanon. It does not suit them. Hezbollah, it does not suit Hezbollah to be in the spotlight, whether in Lebanon or in the world. Uh, Hezbollah prefers to, uh, to revive whatever dichotomy that, uh, that was there during the Syrian occupation of Lebanon prior to 2005. Uh, at the time, Hezbollah uh, focused uh, on its resistance and Syria took care of politics and just protected Hezbollah's back. But with the Syrians out, Hezbollah was forced to step in. And when it stepped in, sometimes it had to, it, it, it had to use its arms and this, this forces Hezbollah to, uh, to use its political capital as well. And uh, I would say one of the reasons why Hezbollah lost these elections is because you can't take the country to two wars, one with Israel, the other one domestic, and, and just expect people to vote for you. Uh, so I, I don't think Hezbollah is happy. It would have preferred to win, and probably the cabinet would just rubber stamp whatever de facto policies that it can come up with. Now that's not the case, and I think Hezbollah will be forced to stay in the spotlight, might be invited to flex a muscle sometime, which I'm sure Hezbollah's, that's not Hezbollah's preferred choice. Uh, but the pressure will remain, and, and, and I'm not saying there'll be civil war starting tomorrow. I think both parties have agreed to sideline the whole uh, uh, issue of Hezbollah's arms. They pushed it to what is called in Lebanon the National Dialogue Council, where it's not uh, neither resolved nor approved. So they're still debating this. I think they'll be debating it for a while until things change in the region. And uh, a big part of how Hezbollah or its, uh, or its uh, uh, rivals in Lebanon will behave depends on, on the regional situation. Carl Miller, Cambridge University. Um, given, uh, given the lack of uh, kind of uh, pro-democracy activism uh, in uh, Obama's recent Cairo speech, uh, what's your prognosis for uh, the um, Ayman Nur and the other uh, the other Egyptian um, um, democrat activists? Um, are we going to see any uh, kind of genuine reflection of uh, of, uh, of the kind of regional shifts uh, in Egypt itself? Well, I, I have to say, unfortunately that uh, the world just stopped spreading democracy in the Middle East. 
Uh, now, uh, the Bush administration was trying to spread democracy. Uh, the Bush administration might have been bad and a failure. That does not mean that democracy is bad. Democracy is good. But uh, unfortunately, it was the, the battle was taken probably by the wrong people at the wrong time. Uh, and I, thi I think uh, uh, Mr. Obama, even though he supports whatever he thinks is ethically right, uh, and, and many of us commend him for doing so, uh, I think he gave up on the business of spreading democracy. And now if you uh, go to uh, think tanks or uh, NGOs in Washington, you'd hear them uh, talking about supporting democracy, not spreading it. Uh, so the whole, the whole uh, uh, idea in Washington is shifting, and it was evident even in, in uh, uh, President Obama's speech in Cairo. He said, we will be supporting human rights wherever they are. And this is as vague as it can get. So uh, I don't think uh, Mr. Obama is willing to spend any of his political capital to, to resolve any of the democracy issues per se. Uh, I think he'll focus on what he believes is the more comprehensive idea, such as the, the peace uh, deal in, across the region or maybe dealing with Iran. To him, this, this will be the focus, not democracy, including Mr. Ayman Noor and other uh, Egyptian uh, opposition figures in, in Cairo. Yes, over there. Amir Na'atallah from LSE MPA. Um, to what extent do you think that the MOU or the International Tribunal is a negotiable uh, to thaw relations with Syria? Um, well, you see, Mirna's uh, the, the thing is, uh, there are some issues in Lebanon uh, of national importance that uh, most of the parties are trying to behave as if they don't exist. And the special tribunal is one of them. The other one is the, the arms of Hezbollah, apparently. Uh, I think the MOU stands behind all the disagreements between the March 14 majority on the one side and Hezbollah, its allies, and Syria on the other. Um, I don't think anyone uh, uh, forgets for any minute that this MOU is still pending. Uh, to circumvent this MOU in order to uh, uh, do whatever this MOU is supposed to do without the Lebanese cabinet approving it, you will have to go back to the Security Council and get it approved under Chapter 7. And this is not easy. So uh, uh, I'm not sure how, how this thing will go. Uh, what I'm sure of is that the tribunal is, is still going on. And uh, I know it's keeping some people in Syria and Lebanon on their toes. And it's, it's been driving their behavior over the past few years. And I expect it will keep on doing so for the coming few years. Hello, uh, Eric Randolph from the James Information Group. Um, despite what you've said about Obama not wishing to or not seeking to spread democracy uh, as much, um, there's been some talk in the media over here about the Obama effect in Lebanon uh, of his speech uh, in Cairo the other day. Do you think that had much of an impact on the voters in Lebanon last week? What we know in Lebanon is that Voters had been already resolved long time before elections and long time before uh, Mr. Obama's speech. Uh, the only swing voters and the swing states, uh, the swing districts, excuse me, were uh, the Christian voters and the, uh, the Christian districts. Uh, 
traditionally the Christians have been allied with uh, with the West with Western countries, and traditionally they've uh, they've they've endorsed the line that Lebanon should should remain sovereign and independent. And uh, uh, Mr. Michel Aoun, who who swept Christian areas in 05, was clearly taking them to a new rhetoric of, uh, uh, under the idea of Lebanon, the resistance country, Lebanon, the resistance state, uh, Lebanon standing up to imperial powers. This, this is clearly not the Christian traditional line. And with or without Mr. Obama's speech, or for that matter, the visit of Vice President Joe Biden to Beirut shortly before Mr. Obama's speech, I, I, I don't think, I don't believe uh, uh, these two, uh, the visit and the speech, affected uh, the uh, or influenced voters in Lebanon. I'd say it's, it's the, the whole thing was what had been brewing for a while, and these uh, results, even though they they didn't show in pre-election polls, where would have happened with or without uh, the speech of Mr. Obama. Uh, thank you. Uh, Esteban Davies, uh, Southampton University. Um, as I understand, from 2013, uh, the Lebanese diaspora is going to be able to vote in the elections. Um, and so I was wondering uh, what impact you have this, uh, this will have, especially uh, with well, such a huge diaspora, uh, especially in countries such as Brazil, Mexico, and or Middle Eastern countries. Um, and so with the impact it could have, on the one hand, on the confessional system, and also in the relation with the West? Well, it depends how, who you, who you uh, define as being part of the Lebanese diaspora, because uh, the Lebanese have been uh, leaving their country since the late 1800s. And you have the first generation and second generation and third generation. You have uh, Lebanese who still maintain their, their ties to Lebanon, who still, who still hold the Lebanese passport. And you have other Lebanese who just uh, dropped the passport and have just become naturalized wherever they're, they're living. So I think uh, the trick here is to define who the diaspora is. Now, the, the, the common feeling in Lebanon is that uh, the, the Christian diaspora uh, 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 comes, is, or the Christian diaspora in the past is much bigger than the Christian diaspora now. So uh, sometimes you, you might hear Christian leaders in Lebanon trying to fight to include as much as possible uh, uh, Lebanese immigrants outside of Lebanon and to go way back in history. Whereas uh, the, the Muslim leaders try to define uh, diaspora voters as the one who just left the country over the past three or four decades. So there's a disagreement there. And uh, mind you, this might be uh, funny. Uh, Brazil, for instance, has eight million Lebanese, and that's double the population of Lebanon. So if, we, if, these, if these people vote, uh, we're in for a, for a totally, totally different Lebanon than the one that we know now. So it's complicated, and I don't think that, that they will be able to find a solution sometime soon. Other questions on this side? Yes. Um, Angela Daly, European Alternatives. Um, I have two questions. Um, the first one is, um, do you think we're going to see any change to the confessional allocations in the Lebanese parliament anytime soon, and perhaps even embracing one person, one vote? 
Um, and secondly, um, do you think the Lebanese elections will have any effect on the development of democracy in the region? And I was thinking specifically of Gulf countries, but Egypt, and so on as well. Thank you. Um, well, to change the confessional system, uh, of course, you will need the support of most of the parties. And if we say it has to be consensus, then uh, you know, I'd say it, it would be hard to find such consensus in Lebanon. Uh, the, the issue as it stands is that uh, both sides, the, both majorities now, uh, the biggest group in Lebanon are the Sunnis according to uh, uh, voters, uh, ele uh, uh, the, the, the list of eligible voters. So the biggest group are the Sunnis with, with around 850,000 voters. The second biggest group is the Shia with a slight difference at 830,000 or probably 20,000. And then you get the uh, distant third with the Maronites at 630,000. So uh, uh, as you might know, Lebanon, the system is divided, uh, is split into half between the Christians and the Muslim. Each one, uh, each one of them gets half in parliament, in cabinet, and everywhere else. And uh, what's happening now is that we have the Christians at 40% of the population, but uh, they get 50% of the seats. So that's clearly unfair, and some people are saying, let's change this once and for all. Now the problem is each one of the big parties, that's the Shia under Hezbollah and the Sunnis under Mr. Hariri along with the Druze under Mr. Jumblat, each party is trying to win the Christian over to their side. And to do so, they can't say that we're willing to take away whatever privilege that you have, like 40% and getting 50% in the state. So uh, both of them are trying to make nice with the Christians and both of them are trying to say uh, Christian rights will be preserved. And I think the Christians themselves are happy to keep a share that's clearly bigger than the population. So uh, given the political situation that we have right now, I don't think we'll be moving toward any confessional uh, system, at least in theory, uh, if not you know, the culture and, and everything, uh, the social issues in the country. Um, as for the Lebanese effects on, uh, uh, throughout the region, uh, I'm not sure how, how things are connected. Uh, I, uh, I have to say that uh, in, in some areas in the region, in some countries of the region, uh, democracy is really commendable. And in, in some areas, it has probably overtaken uh, Lebanon. Uh, if you look at Kuwait, and you, you find out that the Kuwaitis elected four women without any uh, uh, female quota and without any party system, um, that you know, you'd be surprised. That's a good surprise. That's uh, good for democracy and civil society and whatnot. Um, at the same time, if you look, probably, uh, I'd say Jordan has a good functioning constitution uh, democracy, uh, give or take the powers of the monarch. But that's that's you know, that's up for discussion. It might develop over time. But uh, my sense is that Jordan has a much better functioning state institutions than, than Lebanon does. So if, if Lebanon was ever to export its kind of, of state institutions to the region, that, that won't be something pleasant to do. Um, will Lebanon have an effect over Egypt and other countries? Um, uh, I, I don't see it coming. I think there's, a, there's, there's an Islamic wave that's just sweeping every country in the region. Uh, and, and Lebanon is no exception. I don't think Lebanon alone, alone would, would, would be able to reverse the tide in the region. Hi, 
Uh, yeah, going back to the other uh, previous uh, questions, uh, Jonathan Graham, a law student. Um, going back to the previous question about um, the confessional system, do you not think that in the long term, that given you know the ever declining share of the Christian population with lower birth rates in the Shiites and Sunnis, and the fact that in a lot of the Christian candidates are dependent now on <coughs> Muslim votes to, for election, do you think in the long term, though, it would be viable that the Christians would maintain that to share uh, in the seats? Well, if you're asking my personal opinion, I'm, I'm totally and utterly and completely opposed to the confessional system that we have right now in Lebanon. I think that's the total opposite of democracy. A democracy is the rule of the majority, and it, it should not observe any fixed quotas, whether it's religion or ethnicity or, any, or, or of any kind. And I've, I've just said that consensus and democracy is an oxymoron put together. Uh, now, uh, I would have wished that uh, the Christian leadership in Lebanon uh, to behave in a more wise way, because as a minority, it's in your best interest to move quickly toward uh, a, a secular Lebanon. Because uh, uh, in, uh, 10 years down the road, the Christians might be 20% of the population because trends show that the Christians are on the decline in terms of population among the Lebanese. So the more you're going down, the more leverage the other groups are getting. And it's certainly not in your interest to, 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 uh, to go with the system. So uh, if I were uh, uh, with a Christian leadership in Lebanon, I would move towards secularism. And I would say, uh, the Christian leadership should learn from a minority leader in Lebanon's history, uh, and, and I'm, I'm talking about uh, uh, the, uh, Kamal Jumblat, the father of the current uh, Druze leader, Wali Jumblat. Kamal Jumblat realized that behaving as a, as a minority group, he'd get no chance at becoming anything because the Druze are not allocated any seat for a president or a prime minister or a speaker. So he realized it's in his own interest to move in the opposite direction. And, and the minute Lebanon becomes secular, the better chances that minorities like the Druze or the Christians would get. Now, unfortunately, that's not the thinking in Lebanon. And I think we'll be stuck with what we have for a while. Yes. I have a question about. George yeah, sorry, sorry. I have a question about the formation of organizations such as Fath al-Islam in the north of Lebanon with regards to funding, uh, weaponry, and main aim. And Sorry, okay. what's the question? Yeah, yeah I got, got the question. He's just inquiring about the, the group, okay. the radical Islamist group. The, the emergence, what, what they want to achieve, especially since they are formed of people from several Arab nations, where they, that's what? Yes. Uh, well, there has been a big debate over Fath al-Islam in, uh, in Lebanon. And let me start by saying, uh, Fath al-Islam came from a pro-Syrian Palestinian group. And if you go to uh, press reports at the time, you would find that this uh, Fath al-Antifada, the parent group, under Abu Khalid al-Amli, who lives in Damascus mainly, they were the ones who trained them and took them to the camps and, and gave them their headquarters. So uh, to start with, we have uh, a concrete evidence that uh, this group came out of pro-Syrian Palestinian uh, from under their wing. Uh, now, uh, I'm aware that there are many uh, reports accusing 
Mr. Saad Hariri of funding these Islamist groups, of course, because Mr. Hariri being a close ally of Saudi Arabia. Uh, I think this is uh, utterly uh, nonsense. And I've read uh, time and again uh, what uh, uh, our colleague, uh, our senior colleague, uh, Sai Hirsch, wrote in The New Yorker. And uh, he accused uh, the Lebanese government, and that's, of course, when he says that, he means Mr. Sanura and, and eventually the whole Hariri group. He accused the Lebanese government of funding and training Fatah al-Islam. And what evidence did he produce? His evidence was based on the statement from Alistair Crook, who was, who was a former MI6 uh, officer. And Mr. Crook has been living in Beirut for a while. And if you, if you take a look at the quote that Mr. Crook said, he said, uh, when the Fatah al-Islam group started, I was told that in no time the Lebanese government offered them funds and arms. So I, I, until now, I've been searching for a while. I couldn't find any links to connect Mr. Hariri in terms of funding to Fatah al-Islam. Uh, then again, we have to keep in mind that uh, uh, whenever someone is talking about, or uh, whenever someone is, is uh, attributing uh, stories to, to Mr. Hariri, we have to make them fit. We have to make, make them coherent. It does not make sense that the Islamists uh, uh, kill Mr. Hariri as per the tape of Mr. Abu Adas, who's supposedly the killer. And, and, and then we say that Saad Hariri is funding uh, Fatah al-Islam. So uh, the, the, the radical Islamists either killed Hariri the father or the son is, is, not, is not funding. It can't be that they kill the father and then the, the, the son starts funding. That, that does, not, does not fit logic. So uh, we can just, you know, we can just debate this, but I've, I've tried so, so, uh, so hard, and the only conclusion I came up with, this group came from uh, 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 Syrian intelligence offices, most probably, and that's how it is. Now we can say, you know, whoever is funding them, and by the way, they, they don't need that much of funding, because it's, it's, it's a small group with a, it only needs arms and, 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 and AK-47s. Uh, so, uh, yeah, personally, I don't subscribe to any idea that they're getting funding from Hariri or Saudi Arabia for that matter. The lady there. Linda Hyden, independent scholar. Uh, two questions, really. Um, first of all, it just strikes me that there's a contradiction, really, between your advocacy for democracy in the region and your analysis of how things work there, which really seems to put the position of the people of various countries in a position of pawns being played about by the leaders of one country or another. Um, where is the agency for people uh, of these countries in your analysis and how, how does that work? Um, secondly, Moving to Iran and the issue of democracy there, you've dismissed, uh, uh, if I understand your argument, you've dismissed the, the election really as pretty much meaningless because of the power of the supreme leader. But if the election is so meaningless and the supreme leader is so all-powerful, why is the election taking place, particularly in the way it is, with four very, very diverse candidates uh, televised debates that have called, that are, are debating all of the major strategic issues facing Iran in a very open way, 
hundreds of thousands of people in the streets, etc. Thank you. First, uh, for the contradiction, I'll just share uh, bits and pieces of my personal life. First of all, um, I was born Shia, which means I should be supporting Hezbollah in Lebanon and the Shia alliance in the region. And uh, apparently, you can conclude that I don't. Uh, second, uh, I'm, mar I'm, I'm married to a non-Shia, and it's unfortunate that uh, there is no civil law in Lebanon, so we had to uh, get married outside of the country. And I can go on citing examples. Uh, I'd love to see democracy uh, being spread in the region. Now, that's, that's my, my personal sentiment. But as an analyst, we have to look and, and, and decide what's going on. Uh, and sometimes whatever is going on does not match with, with what we wish would, would, would go on. Um, of course, I, I support democracy, and, and, and I'm, I'm a dem democracy advocate. Uh, but uh, I don't find enough uh, democracy supporters. Uh, I always tend to say uh, the Middle East, if, if we are ever to, sp so to spread democracy in the Middle East, we will need citizens. And unfortunately, we don't have citizens as it stands. We have mostly communities. And I, I referred more than once to the tribal structure uh, in Iraq that has been there for more than 100 years. I'm opposed to the structure, but that, that and I believe it impedes democracy. But it's not my call. I'm only the analyst. I'm, I'm not the, the one who decides in, in the region. Um, as for, the, uh, for Iran and democracy, uh, it depends how, do you, how, how, you def how you define democracy. Is it the process? Is it the outcome? Is it the decision making? Uh, we can come up with a list of, of, of items that can show that these elections are being rigged all the time. Uh, the candidates have to be vetted by the Council of the Guardians, and the, then the Supreme Leader has veto power over whoever, and then the Supreme, Supreme Leader throws his weight behind one of the candidates, so you get the army supporting him and so on and so forth. So uh, we can come up with a list to, uh, to shoot holes in, in, in Iranian democracy. I'm not planning to do that. That's none of my business, I, I believe. Uh, yes, of course, having a debate, that's, uh, uh, that's better than, than in, in other countries of the region where there's no election whatsoever. Uh, but how democratic is that? Uh, if, you, if you heard me during uh, my remarks, I said, uh, I prefer going with Ahmadinejad, even though um, um, I, I tend to support the, the reformists, because with Mr. Ahmadinejad, uh, you get what you see. And that's my only take, because uh, if, if we get Mr. Musavi and, and he reverses Mr. Ahmadinejad's statement by saying, okay, listen, the Holocaust happened, but I can't tell you anything about the Iranian nuclear program. So uh, it'll be the same thing. Uh, so that's, that's my take. Uh, I, I believe if, uh, if Iran uh, if Iran were uh, an actual democracy, uh, we would have seen, we would have seen uh, things really changing after elections. It can't be that you, whoever you elect, you'll get the same policy. Uh, this does not happen in any elections. And as long as this is the case in Iran, I, I might not call it democracy, and, and you can call it democracy. You can be my guest for that. Yes. Hi, uh, Mario Mohamed, I'm a filmmaker. Um, going back to Lebanon and the confessional voting system, um, given that a large chunk of the Lebanese population are 
still very sectarian with their allegiances and their voting patterns. Um, how realistic do you see the, the concept of abolishing the confessional voting system and how realistic do you see it, the effect to be working um, in a secular way? I, I don't believe it can work in a secular way. I, I think we can polish it, if you will. Uh, there, are, the, there was a list produced by NGOs in Lebanon uh, supervising elections that showed there are many flaws that, that are not even pertaining to the system itself. Like the printed ballot, uh, Lebanon didn't have one. So you, you, you go to, to the ballot box and you just write the names of the candidates that you want to elect. That's, that's only one example. And uh, there's a, a whole list of, uh, of errors that we can fix even within uh, uh, the, the system, the confessional system that we have now. Uh, now, I think this is doable. It only needs the political will of the Lebanese leaders. Go going beyond that to, uh, uh, to, to try to abolish the confessional system, I don't think this will happen. I, I don't think it even come near to, to becoming part of the national debate in the country to start with. Yes. Sandra Sahimi, I'm a law student at SOAS. Uh, I'd just like to get your opinion on the current interior minister, Ziad Barut, and who you foresee um, uh, being assigned any portfolios in the upcoming cabinet. Uh, well, Mr. Ziad Baroud is, uh, has proven to be a, a capable minister and uh, he does not need my uh, testimony for his uh, abilities. So I think Lebanon has been lucky to get uh, someone who has been active in the NGO community. Uh, and uh, everyone, uh, everyone has reported that these elections were uh, one of the best probably in Lebanon's history. And everyone, I think all the Lebanese should commend their interior minister for that. Uh, as for the uh, coming uh, cabinet and portfolios, that's, you know, I, I can't come up with any name that I can, you know, predict will play any portfolio. Now, what we have is that I think March 14 will try to, uh, to, to maintain the share of the president, of President Michel Sleiman, inside the cabinet. And as you might know, uh, Mr. Baroud and Defense Minister uh, Al-Mur uh, are, uh, belong to the share of the president. I think March 14 will try to keep that uh, in the cabinet, and I, I, I also I also believe uh, the uh, the March 8 or the Hezbollah alliance will try to oppose that. Uh, I, I'm not resolved. I'm not sure which one will prevail, but I hope uh, ministers like uh, Mr. Baroud uh, will will stay in cabinet and will get more more people who are like them. Clear. At the back. Um, hello, hello, Hussein. I'm Claire Spencer. As you know, I flew in from um, Lebanon this morning where I was monitoring the elections. And one thing we did yesterday was a tour of Beirut very quickly in the evening. And you can, it's very striking to see how you can move um, from east and west Beirut down to southern Beirut and the very sudden change between five-star hotels and luxury developments, uh, most of which belong to Solidaire, the company set up by 
the Hariri family, but there are reasons for, for redeveloping, obviously, bomb-damaged Beirut. But my question, I suppose this is leading up to, is how much of this is about economics as opposed to politics in its uh, broadest sense? Economics, I mean, is uh, division of resources and unfair division of resources. It's very evident when you're in southern Beirut why an organization, a party, a movement like Hezbollah should have so much support because there are no social services. They're the only ones actually providing anything. Uh, there's rudimentary health care, if, any. if, if anyone is providing anything. It's not the state, it's Hezbollah. So could you comment on the role that not only economics has played in the past, but what might happen now? Um, is it going to consolidate, dare I say it, a rich Sunni elite in uh, the, the victory of March 14th? Um, well, e economics is just like the rest of the uh, political scene in Lebanon. It's even more complicated. Uh, uh, I'm not an eco economist myself, but uh, I've learned that uh, economists say during civil war, uh, the, the backdoor economy prospers. And uh, this is what's happened in Lebanon during the civil war. And, and unfortunately, it went on uh, until after the civil war. So I can assume that uh, in Lebanon, uh, we, we safely have, we still have the backdoor economy with parties receiving uh, funds from different regional patrons and then dispensing them among their supporters to keep the support. Um, now, now, talking about uh, what the state has achieved and has not achieved, um, uh, by the end of the 90s and early 2000 uh, until 2002, um, I, was, I was reporting and my beat was uh, uh, labor unions and, 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 and uh, for, uh, the, the, minister, the ministries that deal with what, what the Lebanese call services, such as electricity and, uh, and water and whatnot, and the labor. Now, uh, given the, the political situation in Lebanon, if you, if you draw a list of ministers, take the labor minister, for example, take the uh, electricity minister, for example, and uh, who else we can think of. Uh, these two ministers were never given to Mr. Hariri. Uh, ever since he became uh, uh, prime minister, and even when, when Mr. Senyura became prime minister, these portfolios were, e were always given to either someone who's close to Syria, and after Syria, someone who's close to Hezbollah. So uh, if, you, if you think of electricity, uh, which is, of course, a, a headache in Lebanon, that's, uh, I know for a fact that whoever is prime minister from the Hariri side has not had any authority over them. Uh, uh, now, it's interesting because uh, uh, Mr. Hariri has more fame than truth uh, uh, being accused of devastating the Lebanese economy. And as, as, as I said previously, this, the, the formula between 91 and 2005 um, during the Syrian uh, influence inside Lebanon, the formula was, was that Mr. Hariri will get to deal with economics and, and construction and reconstruction and the, the security matters are in the hands of, of Syria. Now, I, I don't think that's, that's pretty much accurate. Uh, between, uh, until, until the year 2000, um, uh, Israel was still occupying southern Lebanon. And uh, Hezbollah refused to negotiate peacefully with Israel. They insisted to get the land through military operations. And as, as you might know, in economics, that's a killer for any economy. Mr. Hariri tried to stabilize the Lebanese pound. And in order to do that in a country that has daily uh, war, you will have to borrow money at high interest rate because your credit as a country is way, way low. 
So uh, Mr. Hariri kept on stabilizing the, uh, the, 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 the lira, the Lebanese lira, the Lebanese pound, at a very high cost. And this uh, shot the, the national debt up high. Uh, another reason, the, uh, the electric, uh, the, uh, the uh, Electricité du Liban, that's the, the, uh, the company, the state-owned company in charge of producing electricity in Lebanon. Uh, uh, this was always under someone who's close to Syria, a minister who's close to Syria, and then it's moved to Hezbollah, the strait. Or before, uh, and in between, it was some, for some time with ministers who are loyal to Mr. Birri. Uh, the health ministry, by the way, has also been under the control of, of pro-Syrian or pro-Hezbollah ministers. And uh, I, I see uh, Hezbollah and its allies, or sometimes the Syrian allies, who are trying to blame Mr. Hariri all the time for all the ills that have befallen them. But uh, we have to think, uh, how can we blame Mr. Hariri if, we, if, if he can't use any political leverage over his own ministers because they belong to, to, to the other uh, coalition? So uh, that's, a, that's a complicated thing. Now, another note I can, I can uh, uh, say here. Uh, people seem to not to understand what's Solidaire. Uh, Solidaire is a public traded company. It does not belong to Mr. Hariri himself. The parliament convened and, and, and sort of confiscated private property there and it transformed uh, whatever property into stocks. So owners got automatic stocks. But this does not mean that Mr. Hariri owns the company. And if anyone has enough money, you can just own the whole of Solidaire. And uh, I know for a fact from first-hand experience, Mr. Hariri tried to uh, uh, replicate the Solidaire experience in the area of Uzai, uh, to the south, in the southern suburb of Beirut, which is, as you might have seen, uh, such a miserable place. And uh, they, they just blackmailed Mr. Hariri to the extent that he couldn't come up with a similar project. Uh, he tried his hand also in some areas in Beirut, except that no one uh, would approve of it, uh, because uh, they thought this, this, must have, this must be something that can uh, uh, they can get, get out with, a lots, with lots of money. So it never worked. Uh, so I think even though Hariri is a tr is, ha has been accused of running the economy, and in and, and, and many parts I disagree with the way his economic team ran the country at times. Sometimes I thought pegging the Lebanese pound to the dollar was not a wise thing to do. But that's, that's, that's only theoretical disagreement. But what I'm saying on the ground, uh, it's not what, uh, you know, what it looks like. Uh, for the coming cabinet, if there is no political will to deal with this and to implement uh, uh, reforms that were suggested during the Paris Three Donor Conference, uh, I, I don't think that the economy will, will improve. It will remain, it will, it will, it will stay depending on uh, the backdoor economy and on remittances coming from Lebanese abroad. Yes, at the back. Hi, Danny, Danny Mina, King's College. Um, two questions. First question is, uh, what do you think is the future of the Palestinian camps in Lebanon? Do they pose any sort of threat on uh, Lebanese political stability? Second question is, um, with this new government now in place, uh, do you think um, refugees or refugees who have uh, traveled to, to Israel for protection, let's say against Hezbollah, would ever be integrated back to Lebanon? And um, prisoners of war or people that have been kidnapped disappeared in Syria. 
Do you think they will ever also return back to Lebanon? Or would that case ever be solved? Thank you. Well, um, for the Palestinian camps question, it's, it's just unfortunate for the Palestinians that the Lebanese who disagree on almost every issue only agree on, on keeping the Palestinian refugees in the miserable condition that they are in right now. And that's, that's ironic, uh, sad, but true. Uh, well, uh, they say if, if they ever uh, give Palestinians the Lebanese uh, citizenship, that will tilt whatever confessional uh, balance we have in favor of Christians, of course, uh, most of the refugees being, uh, I'm sorry, in, in favor of the Sunnis, most of the refugees being Sunnis. Uh, but I just don't understand why these refugees are not given uh, civil rights, uh, even without citizenship. So uh, for, for many reasons, uh, no one has so far dared to stand up for the refugees, and whoever tries to do that is automatically accused of abandoning Palestine and of trying to settle Palestinians in Lebanon. So this has become a, a controversial political thing, and no one uh, of, from the politicians likes to wander there. Much to the misfortune of the Palestinians, I think this is totally wrong. And I totally advocate giving them civil rights first and foremost, and just getting, a, getting them out of whatever misery they've been living in for the past 50 or 60 years. Now, uh, for the Lebanese uh, in Israel and the Lebanese in Syria, uh, well, I, I, I seriously don't know which one is more complicated than the other. There's no short answer for either one of them. Uh, I would say the Lebanese and Israel, if, if there's ever peace between Israel and Lebanon, then they can get to come back, uh, which, is, which puts them in a slightly better situation than the Lebanese and Syrian prison, because only God knows where they are. Uh, the, the Syrian authorities never admit that they have these, uh, these uh, prisoners. Uh, uh, the parents, the families of these prisoners know exactly where these prisoners are, except that no one would listen to them. And uh, for a while, when uh, General Michel Aoun uh, paid a trip to Syria to mend his relations and reestablish his connections, uh, I was optimistic that one of the byproducts might be that Syria would release uh, a number of prisoners to give Mr. Aoun some political support, because this is popular, of course, in, in Christian areas. Unfortunately, it didn't happen. And uh, it's, it's very unfortunate for all these families that have been uh, fighting for it for a long time. And uh, it's, uh, it's just, uh, so far, it's not a winning battle. Yes. Hi, uh, my name is Daniel. Um, recently, uh, the British government changed its policy towards uh, Hezbollah, uh, at least before the elections, saying it would um, talk, had talks with the political wing, and obviously it said there were two different wings, Hezbollah. Um, what did you think of this? And secondly, do you, do you think that contradicted their foreign policy towards uh, Hamas in terms of their refusal to uh, speak to them? Well, uh, I've been having trouble communicating this point in, in the UK, apparently, because everyone seems to be in support of talking or engaging uh, Hezbollah. Uh, I'm not, so uh, I'll try to uh, communicate this as best as I can. Uh, well, first of all, the reason why we shouldn't talk to Hezbollah is, is only to do things the right way. Uh, uh, you tell people 
if you want to talk to us, government to government, or you know whatever uh, form you, you have, you have to get elected, abandon violence, and talk to us. If you, if you don't, you'll send the wrong message to the other people who have abandoned violence and who are campaigning in politics only peacefully, and then you get to talk to the other side anyway. So uh, we have to set some rules and to send some messages. Uh, but anyway, that's, this, is, this is only a matter of principle. And I'm not trying to vilify Hezbollah by, by any means. I'm, I'm not saying, uh, I think looking at them as a, as a terrorist organization from a Western perspective, that's the most shallow way for looking at them. The, uh, Hezbollah is much more than, than a military organization. But that's a, that's a different story. Now, uh, comparing this to Hamas, uh, I know many people say that uh, it's unfair. The world asked the Palestinians to elect, and when they elected, no one talked to Hamas. Um, you might remember that in the year 2000, Austrians elected uh, an ultra-right-wing uh, chancellor, Jörg Haider, if, if that's the correct pronunciation. And what, when that happened, governments of the world announced that they will cease cooperation, if that's the correct statement, if I remember correctly, they will cease cooperation with Mr. Haider. And they did. It was, it was similar to, 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 to imposing sanctions on, on Austria. And the, the coalition just didn't hold for more than a, a few weeks, probably a couple of months. And it, it collapsed under pressure from the Austrians themselves. So what I'm saying is that democracy is not only voting, and then that's, you know, that holds everything. Uh, democracy is about voting and about conveying to the voters that they have to deal with the, with the results of what, what they voted for. So they voted for Hamas. They know Hamas does not admit the membership, the, does not admit the existence of one of the UN members, whether, whether we like it or not. But that's a, Israel is a, is, a, is a UN member. Uh, PLO or the Palestinian Authority has admitted the existence of Israel. And you cannot just, you know, admit as a Palestinian, you cannot admit the existence of Israel one day and then you elect a different uh, cabinet, and so you, you stop admitting, admitting. It has to be a successive chain of ongoing admittance, if there's such a word. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm just, I just think the, the whole issue of talking to Hamas when in government is controversial. And I think it's fair to ask Hamas to admit the existence of Israel in return for world governments talking to them. Now, this does not mean that I advocate whatever uh, inhumanistic uh, condition that the Palestinians are living under in Gaza. That's, uh, that's way too much for any human to, to imagine, and it goes beyond politics. And it, it goes beyond, beyond my, uh, my, capacity, my capacity as an analyst. That's, you know, that's only, we're human beings after all. So uh, why I think we shouldn't talk to Hamas, or that the West shouldn't talk to Hamas, or shouldn't talk to Hezbollah, um, I still think uh, you know, it's, it's unfair to treat Palestinians in Gaza the way we're doing now. Uh, one last note, by the way. The British government has been in touch with Hezbollah over the past few years. And, and, and there's nothing new in, in talking to Hezbollah. And uh, when talking to one British official, I said, first of all, uh, show me one fruitful outcome of talking to Hezbollah over the past few years. And I, he couldn't show me any. I, I couldn't come, come up with any. Uh, and, and, and that's one. And uh, uh, the, the second thing, uh, uh, I, I don't think this is, uh, I think what's happening now, there's no political wing and the military wing. And Hezbollah, Hezbollah has a rigid uh, organization. You have to be a practicing Shia 
and, and as rigid as it can get. Not only a Shia, not only, uh, you know, you have to be practicing Shia to be a member of Hezbollah. And, uh, and there's no political wing. Once you're a member, you will have to do whatever everybody else has to do. Uh, so uh, I know students from AUB who were members of Hezbollah during the time when I was at the American University of Beirut who were asked to go and fight in the South, even though they were uh, merely students. So there's no political and military wing. And uh, I don't think it's a wise idea to, to give Hezbollah the pleasure of having a public stunt at the expense of, of the UK. Just keep talking to them, the, the low profile you're, you're, you're handling now. Just don't uh, uh, you know, uh, add things to the mix. Yes, final question. student. I just have a couple of comments in regards to the uh, lecture you lectured uh, today and earlier this week. Um, can you hear me? Yeah. All right, good. Um, comments are in regards to today's lecture and uh, earlier this week as well. Um, to the establishment of facts, I'm much like you, I'm Iraqi and Lebanese at the same time. I am born in Chile. Comments will be in regards to three things. What you called the free elections, sovereignty of Lebanon, that is, and Iraq. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not hearing, just um, speak up, please. The uh, three things that I'll be commenting about in, um, in short are the free elections. In Lebanon? Uh, or, or, yeah, what you dubbed as the free elections, sovereignty of Lebanon, and Iran. Now, for free elections, I'm not sure what you can call as free elections, but when Saudi Arabia admits to investing $2 billion, most of which go to bribery, I believe, of the Lebanese man, a Lebanese man who is a farmer, a Lebanese man who is an ordinary man, who does not have enough to sponsor their children, their family, um, as conservative a Shiite as I might be, but I think I'd excuse such people to be voting in the direction of 14th of March and not another. Another thing, another point can, that I'd like to... Can um, we have a, a question, please? Yeah, I'll, I'll be making a question yeah. now. Soon. Because it's... Um, but sure. Um, with those bribes, with Patriarch Spare's incent, uh, sectarian incensing against Hezbollah and the opposition, with much more than that, and, and with 120,000 expatriate Lebanese votes, yeah, which, as you know, um, was forbidden during this election, can we really call those free elections? And on top of all of that, let us take into account that with all those, with all those results, the opposition in aggregate gained 807, correction, over 870,000 votes, whilst the um, 14th of March, where the so-called winners, gained just a little over 690,000. Uh, second of all, in regards to sovereignty, Three central questions. Um, is uh, yes, uh, three could central you, questions. Could you ask a question, please? Yes. Stop. Well, yeah. well, as for sovereignty, we cannot call, or would you share my view that we cannot call Lebanon a sovereign country where Kufa Shuba, Sheba farmlands, and uh, I mean, 
Should, yeah. should offer arms, yes. Yeah, God does. Can we, really, can we truly call that sovereignty, or would you really call serving the very people who raped their women, destructed their houses, and killed their family, uh, and then just go on to serve them tea at Marjayun? Can we really call that sovereignty, yes or no? And final question uh, is in regards to your remarks um, er made earlier this week about Iraq and Iran. You said that uh, the recent provincial election results indicate that we are against Iran. Rest assured I'm a person whose relatives voted for his eminence, Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki. And to you and to whoever may share your views, uh, with all due respect, we feel that Iran, Iraq, Lebanon, or the majority of Lebanon are converged by a single theology and a single faith that is undeniable and unbreakable. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your questions and your comments earlier this week. The nice ones. They were nice indeed. Um, to start with the free Lebanon and the, uh, the, the, I'm sorry, the free and fair elections. That's not my wording. That's, a, you know, there's President Carter, there's a dozens of European NGOs and uh, both sides uh, of the aisle, that's uh, both Hezbollah and March 14, they're saying they're relatively free and fair. Now, apparently I was here when the elections took place. I'm just reading reports and everyone is, uh, is, is saying these have been free and fair, so to speak. Now, um, the two billion Saudi uh, dollars in Lebanon and the uh, vote buying, uh, well, there, there might have been, I, haven't, I have not seen any reports, but everyone is buying votes in Lebanon. Uh, no one is short of cash. If, if Saudi Arabia has oil money, Iran too, and Qatar. And, 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 and by the way, can you just tell me how come uh, a former army general is running uh, a TV, the orange TV? Where do, where do they get the money from? Well, you know, you have to ask yourself all these questions all the time. So I think it's fair and square. They're both getting funds from outside. They're both buying votes. They're both doing whatever they're doing. And it's, uh, you know, I, I don't see there's, there's, you know, unfairness on one side or the other. Now, that's, that's not, it's not up to my taste. Uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd love to have seen much better elections, but that's, that's the culture, that's Lebanon, it's on both sides. Um, uh, now, yeah, of course, that's fair. Uh, I don't want to miss fair and instigating uh, everyone. Well, that's everyone is instigating everyone. Uh, uh, Hezbollah spent a year and a half saying that uh, one of the biggest sects in Lebanon is not represented in cabinet properly. And that's why uh, it's occupied uh, Beirut and parts of Mount Lebanon. So everyone is, is using the sectarian rhetoric, unfortunately, but everyone is using it. So we can't accuse one part of using it and the other not. As for the difference in votes, uh, well, of course, we realize that there's a difference. Uh, the, uh, the Hezbollah-led alliance got 130,000 votes more than uh, the March 14 majority, uh, but uh, uh, the, uh, it was the Hezbollah Alliance who picked the, the, uh, the electoral law, the 1960 law. That's first of all. Second of all, if you break them by, by uh, the five governorates, you get that, uh, that uh, March 14 won, won in three out of five. So Hezbollah, the Hezbollah uh, uh, victory was actually in, in, uh, in the Biqa'a, Ba'alba Kirmil and, and, and the Biqa'a Rally, and in the south. So it's three to two. So that's, you know, we have, we have a law that was picked by fair and square, and everyone approved of it, of it. and that's, that's, that's where the results that we got, we got. As for sovereign Lebanon, now, uh, I'm not sure whether you've ever been to the Shabbat farms, uh, 
it's, it's a wonderful place. I used to report sometimes from there during military action. It's, it's a sliver of land. It's not populated. There are no Lebanese who live there. It's so high that sometimes you can see the clouds below Shabab farms. And it's, it's just a piece of land in the middle of nowhere. I don't think it's worth all the fight that, that, that Lebanon is putting. I don't think, I, I don't think uh, what Hezbollah is doing in the, is defense. If you're defending Lebanon and 1,200 is killed during the war with Israel, then you clearly fail. It does not matter whether, whether, whether the Hezbollah leadership survived the Israeli attack or not. What matters is a human life. And to me, and, and you know, I've, I've had so many arguments with, with apparently with Hezbollah people about this. Uh, they say we prefer to uh, die standing uh, and, and not live kneeling. And I say, no, I, I prefer living anyway. Uh, kneeling, uh, standing, sleeping, you know. Uh, human life is important. So, yeah. So that's, I'm, I'm just saying this is, this is the arguments we're having. Um, as, for, uh, as for Iraq, Iran, uh, uh, there's, you know, uh, everyone is entitled to their uh, opinion about this. Uh, but what I get is that Mr. Al-Malki is not the staunchest of allies with Iran now. Uh, uh, the media reported that during the recent visit of, of Mr. Rafsanjani to Baghdad, he proposed that uh, Al-Maliki uh, rejoins the, the old Shia ticket. And Mr. Al-Maliki said, I'll only do that if I get to head the ticket. And to me, this is telling because uh, uh, it's, it's not happening anytime soon because, of course, Iran won't give, uh, give up on, uh, on Mr. Al-Hakim. Uh, also, if you observe uh, the municipal elections, you can see that uh, it was divided, and Mr. Al-Maliki was clearly not on Iranian side. He, he held an alliance with a Sunni group that, that was to, you know, until the distant past, his arch enemies. And, 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 and Hezbollah Islami and Al-Hakim also had held another alliance. So it's not as clear-cut as Iranian anti-Iranian, but what we have now is that Al-Maliki is not Iranian-leaning, unlike Al-Hakim. He is not doing what Iran is doing. Uh, Iran is trying to spend money. Al-Maliki is outbidding Iran most of the time because, as you might know, Iraq is also oil-rich. So uh, uh, the relationship between Al-Maliki and Iran is way too different than the relationship between uh, Nasrallah or Hezbollah and Iran. And I hope I answered all your questions. Thank you very much. Um, it is difficult when talking about the Middle East to hold to um, a line between cynicism and realism. But I think you have, um, in my view, managed to go for the latter uh, rather than the former. And for this and for all the um, um, interesting responses to questions in your talk, we are very, very grateful. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.